Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and welcome to of Ecology on Ideas. Tonight we present conversations with two very different thinkers. In the second half of the show, soil ecologist Stuart Hill discusses the poor health of our agricultural soils and calls for a more subtle, more comprehensive science of agriculture. You know, if you think of ecology in a way, it's the study of the relationship between everything and everything. And anything you leave out could be the key thing to understanding the whole. We begin with a visit with Murray Bookchin, the originator of a political and philosophical approach to ecology, which he calls social ecology. Nature is not a scenic, beautiful vision out from a mountaintop. I think true nature, philosophically understood, is that whole evolutionary process toward ever greater subjectivity, self-awareness, and ultimately, in the case of human beings, conceptual thought. That this is an evolutionary process. And I think that this is what I would call nature. The Age of Ecology is a series of eight programs featuring conversations with challenging thinkers in the field. This is the seventh in the series. The Age of Ecology is written and presented by David Cayley. Murray Bookchin has been a pioneer in philosophical ecology for nearly 40 years. A New Yorker by birth, his first intellectual roots were in Marxism and the trade union movement. But by the late 40s, he was already criticizing Marxism and charting a new approach. Marxism still followed the modern Western tradition that pitted humanity against nature. Nature, for Marx, was blind necessity which had to be overcome. Bookchin understood that this image of nature is a reflection of the social relations of a competitive market society. He saw nature in terms of cooperation and freedom. Natural evolution, Bookchin argued, tends to diversity, complexity, and spontaneity. This results in greater subjectivity and greater choice, and ultimately gives an objective ground for human freedom. But social relations based on domination blind us to our natural possibilities. The solution to the ecological problem, therefore, must lie in solving the prior social problem of our unnatural social relations. This, in a nutshell, is social ecology. Bookchin has argued it in books like The Ecology of Freedom and Post-Scarcity Anarchism for many years. He's never really received the public recognition he feels his work deserves, but in the early 80s he was heartened by the emergence of a green movement in both Europe and North America, which acknowledged his ideas and adopted the radical political approach to the environmental crisis which he favored. Today, he worries that the environmental movement is either selling out or retreating into mysticism. His particular bete noire is what is called deep ecology, a philosophy which tries to overcome anthropocentrism by substituting biocentrism, or nature-centeredness. Bookchin believes that deep ecology and its action arm, the Earth First Movement, have produced a nasty misanthropic rhetoric which, in his words, reduces humanity to a parasitic swarm of mosquitoes in a mystified swamp called nature. I visited Murray Bookchin recently in Burlington, Vermont, where he's lived for many years, and we talked in his office. Murray, your new book, Remaking Society, has a, at times a somewhat polemical tone. You seem 
concerned at uh, various tendencies within the environmental movements uh, are not seeing your vision of a social ecology. And I, I wonder uh, what's on your mind. Well, I've been involved in the ecology movement since 1952, when I, 1951. I've been teaching, writing, organizing, belonging, helping form all kinds of ecology movements. And what is disappointing is that the so-called ecological awakening that is taking place today in the face of predictable catastrophes in many cases and predictable trends that are very adverse is taking a, a, a very bizarre and not entirely, in my opinion, wholesome form. I had hoped that when the people were going to be awakened to some kind of ecological consciousness, that they would move to a broad social consciousness. Namely, that they would understand that the basic source of our ecological problems are social in character. There's a tendency today to create a sense of original sin. What I mean by original sin is that people are some vast amorphous thing called humanity, which I would like, a concept that I would like to criticize, is being accused and guilted. That's one tendency. You are responsible without defining who you are, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a person of color or whether you are white or whether you are rich or whether you are poor or whether you have power or whether you are powerless. You are responsible. The corporations love to throw that at you. You see what I'm saying? And that makes me very angry. The second tendency is a hyper-spiritualism that really verges on theology. I certainly believe that we have to consume less. I think we consume absurdly. Those who can afford to consume, if you please. And I certainly believe that we have to have a sensitivity, indeed uh, a, very, a very marked sensitivity and sensibility toward the natural world and toward other forms of life. But all of this is now being translated into a goddess-worshipping religion or a mystical Gaia or Gia, as it should probably be pronounced, or a, uh, an idea of thinking like a mountain, you see, whatever Aldo Leopold meant by that when he wrote that way back years ago. And this whole losing yourself in the cosmic self, all of this is distorting, unfortunately, distorting the real and concealing the real sources of the ecological crises we face today, which are not simply spiritual ones, but are primarily social ones. And more frequently than not, these new developments in the ecology movement, which I regard as being asocial, being psychological, mystical, or religious, are, in my opinion, reflections primarily of the sense of helplessness that people have today and their inability to understand the social sources of the ecological problem. Therefore, I call my view social ecology. In contrast to this alleged deep ecology, or is it deeper ecology? Or is it the deepest ecology? I haven't found out which it is, which is a, a really a religion, basically a religion formulated by one Arne Ness, 
with a group of California professors behind him that is now also beginning to percolate through Canadian the schools and universities. I think these are very well-intentioned people. I think they mean well, but I think there is a real problem of emphasizing the social nature of the ecological crisis. Can we take some of these assumptions more particularly? In deep ecology, for example, there is what's called a biocentric perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea, uh, as Leopold said, that, uh, that human beings are a plain citizen of the biotic community. What do you think of this view? It's absurd. It's patently absurd that we are just plain citizens of the biotic community. We, for better or worse, and as things stand for worse, have produced the second nature, a social nature, out of that old time-honored biological nature in which we, along with other primates, in which other mammals and other vertebrates have evolved over hundreds of millions of years. We are capable of discoursing, evaluating, moralizing, spiritualizing. We are the ones who have created, for better or for worse, morality, ethics, and we are most, unless dolphins are keeping some great secrets from us, uh, we are the ones who are doing the thinking and we are not only doing the thinking, we are doing an enormous amount of acting for the worse on this planet. We're not plain citizens. We have profoundly altered the whole world. Wilderness is, as pure wilderness, pristine, untouched, purely biological, gone. We have to defend wilderness. We have to defend other life forms today from predatory forces in our society. So this biocentric notion, in my opinion, represents a very naive image of nature, basically a picture postcard view. Secondly, this biocentric notion totally deprecates the role that humanity can and possibly should play in a rational society. We are nature, like it or not, rendered self-conscious. The point is, we have not developed a society that is self-conscious. But potentially, we are nature rendered self-conscious to a degree that no other life form can possibly be. So therefore, I regard that biocentricity as being utter nonsense, as just as I oppose anthropocentricity, just as I oppose centricity, which is, in my view, basically hierarchical. You see, behind this lies a whole body of ideas, I need hardly tell you, of how second nature, namely society, human society, has increasingly enveloped a biological evolution, which I would call first nature. It's enveloped it. And the best proof of it is that we have to go around trying to conserve the Antarctica to remind us that wilderness today in the truly spontaneous, wild, untrammeled form has disappeared. We are now, whether we like it or not, the custodians of all those things we call wild. Otherwise, the present society will essentially eliminate them. So we have to recognize that a second nature has emerged. And we have to recognize the second nature is very imperfect. It's based on greed. It's based on profit. It's based on growth. It's based on accumulation. It threatens to destroy first nature, okay? And we must go beyond both second nature and first nature to a new nature, a free nature, in which we will work together with the natural world, bringing our consciousness to the service of natural evolution. And that would require developing an ecological society. 
So I would call that third development uh, an integration of second and first nature into a third nature, a free nature, in which we bring the element, to the extent that it is possible, of thought, rationality, and freedom to natural evolution and to the evolution of our own society in a marvelously integrated world, which I'd call an ecological society. You see, what's getting me very much is that people are being beguiled away from social issues. They're being coaxed away from it. The connections are not being made. The relationship of the domination of nature, the notion of dominating nature, to the reality of dominating people has not clearly been made by many people in the ecology movement. Well, this has been it's been all through your writings, this yeah. insistence that, that human beings dominate each other long before they dominate the natural world. I'd like to ask you, first of all, on what basis you argue that, and then I would like to ask you, to make it a really big question, what the importance of the distinction is, what the sure. implications of that distinction are for current discussions. The evidence for that is staggering. Inca society <laughs> was a system of elaborate domination. Ancient Egyptian society was a system of elaborate domination of people. The pyramids that were built in ancient Egypt were done almost with slave labor, based on an elaborate system of domination, ultimately organized into a caste system under the Ptolemaic dynasty. Yet, the impact that that system had on the natural world was minimal. It was not until that notion of domination of people began to be projected out to the natural world by a society that was out literally to make profit or to gain enormously by the exploitation of what we call natural resources that the idea of dominating nature emerged. It takes a long time for that idea that we are the lords of the universe that we are meant to conquer the natural world to emerge. That does not emerge out of primitive society. It does not even emerge out of fairly high civilizations, such as the ancient Egyptian civilization and such as the Incas. It requires a lot of steps in the evolution of domination on the one side and in the evolution of thinking, the discarding of pagan views, the discarding of a feeling of dependency on the natural world, and so on, to arrive at the notion that it is humanity's destiny to dominate the natural world. Even the Bible does not say it the way we say it says it. <laughs> it is easily forgotten that uh, far from being totally anthropocentric, there are passages in the Bible that are amazingly, quotes, biocentric. I'm reminded, for example, of Psalms, where there's a passage saying a good shepherd takes care of the souls of his animals. Now, it's not translated like that in the King James Version, because animals are not supposed to have souls. But if you go to the Hebrew Version, you see, you'll actually see the generic word for soul in Hebrew used there. So there are many animistic, there are many uh, distinctly non-anthropocentric elements in the Bible. It's not always clear in the Bible, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures, that human beings are destined to dominate, exploit, rapaciously utilize 
the natural world. But uh, let's take the question of why is it important to draw a distinction between the fact that the idea of dominating nature emerges from the domination of human by human, as distinguished from the more classical liberal view and Marxist view, that the domination of humans emerged from the need to dominate nature. Now that is a very sinister point of view, the idea that people are obliged to dominate each other in order to dominate nature. We have to use human labor, we have to mobilize people in gangs to pull up pyramid blocks for pyramids, build temples, etc., 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 exploit them in order to advance the productive forces through the domination of human by human. Marx utilized that notion, and the liberals have utilized that notion to justify capitalism as a historically progressive phase of history. Not that Marx believed that it was destined to remain that way. He wanted to replace it by socialism. But the reality of the situation is that such a view justifies domination. If we have to dominate people in order to dominate nature and in order to improve the human condition, then domination is built in to progress. So uh, my emphasis on domination is not only ecological, it's also social. I do not believe we will have a completely free society unless we end hierarchy. In the course of this conversation, you have suggested that we must take the idea of domination very seriously, more seriously than Marxism has taken it, for example. Look in every aspect of our lives at how we dominate children, about how we dominate each other. So this suggests that the change you would like to see must happen at every level of our lives and yes. very much within our personal lives. Yes. At the same time, you've, you've spoken against the, the guilt trips that you think are being put on people right now, the blaming of, of people, particularly relatively powerless people. So in a movement for change, what do you see happening? You want the society to change in its fundamental structure. And sensibility. And sensibility, but also you see the need for individuals themselves to change. Mm -hmm. So how finally do you see this process ideally taking place? Well, within the individual, it's very, very hard to say. For one thing, I mistrust the movement that is built exclusively on individual change, as the Catholic Church was for 2,000 years, with very grim results. You know, you want person to person, whether by sword or by persuasion, to the uh, holiness of Jesus and uh, turn them into Christians, after which they started a bloody reformation <laughs> around, uh, well, what, in the 15th century going well clear up into the 18th century with immense results. Uh, these are things that people have to take counsel with themselves about, and they have to examine what they want to do. It's good practice to live well, but low on the food chain, feel a sense of responsibility. It's good personal practice, as well as socially useful to do that. But I don't think that you can outweigh the enormous impact of the multinational corporations, <laughs> individual by individual. What about social change? There I think we need a radical ecological movement. And for that we have to the center of power, so to speak. Now that requires politics. Well, what kind of politics? 
If I go into the politics of the NDP, for example, in Canada, or if I go into the politics of Jesse Jackson and the United States and the Rainbow Coalition, all I see is the same old system with more cosmetics on it. The same bureaucracies, the same top-down control, in spite of much of the rhetoric that goes on that people are running the organizations, that is what I call statecraft. And I distinguish that from politics in its original Greek meaning. In its original Greek meaning, politics meant the control of the polis. The polis is what we misname the city-state, but which was really the small democratic community, unfortunately marred by slavery and patriarchalism and war. But still, that existed all through the Mediterranean. The Athenians made a special contribution. They created a big assembly, and they created citizens. And citizens were supposed to be trained, the word was paideia, trained and educated into citizenship. And working for the community was the highest calling in life, not making money. You see, that was the highest calling in life. And the army was a militia, you see, in which officers were elected, and you brought your own equipment. Okay, now, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to go back to that world. I don't think we can. I don't think we should. I don't want the slavery. I don't want the patriarchalism. I don't want the male domination. I don't want the militarism. But I do want certain things that have been abiding features, and that is the attempt on the part of people to recover power, whether it be in the small villages during the great peasant wars around the time of Luther in Germany. They wanted to control power. They wanted to take it away from the princes, whether it be in the various revolutionary movements and upsurges that occurred during the French Revolution when the so-called Enrache and the sans culotte in Paris and in other cities tried to reclaim power in sections or small town meetings in Paris with a million people there. You see, a city could be run that way. Would you believe it? People always have a big mistake, always work with a big error, that because a city is beyond human scale, you can't destructure it, or let's say decenter it politically. You can do it, and it can still be large. Okay? People have continually, in all their revolutionary ferment at various times in political ferment, have tried to decenter power. And I am in favor of a political movement, grassroots, which necessarily means municipal. Municipal. Not one that goes up into the higher echelons of the state. I would like to call it green when Greens don't start running for provincial office or state office, be it in Canada or the United States, or try to put up a presidential candidate or try to put up a candidate to the uh, House of Commons in Canada or the House of Representatives in the United States. Okay? At that point, when a uh, representative gets separated from the people, there's a tremendous amount of self-corruption that very silently goes on. I watched the German Greens degenerate from a movement in which the politics that I've advocated was very widespread into a pure political party indistinguishable from the Social Democrats, the Christian Democrats, at least in terms of its structure. And in terms of its policy, de-radicalizing itself, more and more entering into coalitions, making political deals. Therefore, I believe that the kind of politics we need has to be a grassroots politics based on municipalities. It has to be confederal. I don't believe you can build an ecological society in one household, in one village, in one town, and in one city. 
They all have to be interlinked on a confederal basis so that the higher up the authority, the less power it has. The higher up it is, the more it's purely coordinative and administrative and everything always has to go back to the people. That's the kind of society I would like to see and where I'd like to see evolution go. And I'd like to see, of course, that it be thoroughly ecological. That's what I mean by politics, you see. The old Greek sense, namely the people citizens controlling the polis, except that my notion of citizenship would be immensely expansive based on true ecological and libertarian principles. So we must continually strive and fight and fight and strive. Murray, thank you. Thank you. Murray Bookchin, originator of social ecology. His most recent book is Remaking Society. Stuart Hill is a soil ecologist and the founder of the Ecological Agriculture Project at McGill University's McDonald College, where he's a professor. He believes that agriculture, in its reliance on chemicals, has neglected intelligent design, that a more subtle, more sensitive science could accomplish the same ends now achieved with the brute power of pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers, but without the pernicious side effects. A soil ecologist is concerned with the community of life in the soil, a community on which all of us depend, but few of us know. Stuart Hill and I began a recent conversation at my home by talking about this soil community. If you look out on the landscape, there's more life, however you want to measure it, underneath the surface of the soil than there is above. So you see this field with and forest with all a massive amount of wildlife and however much there is there's more underneath the surface and that's what it is it's a massive community of small organisms all running around in primarily two quite different worlds because if you think of soil it's made up of particles and those particles are usually covered with a very thin film of water and so between the particles with the thin film of water, there's air. And most of the food chain in the water film is based on bacteria. And there are protozoa, one-celled animals, and nematodes and things swimming around, feeding on the bacteria and feeding on one another, and rotifers and these sort of things. And then in the air spaces, you've got fungi, mold growing out into the spaces and browsing on them a bit like cows browsing on grass. You've got mites and springtails and small insects, and then in turn more of these feeding on one another and spiders and centipedes and scorpions and pseudoscorpions and so forth. And what's going on in soil, what, are, what all these bugs are doing in soil, is basically breaking down dead organic matter. It's the part of the cycle in the ecological system which is uh, production, consumption, recycle. And it's the recycle part, which in the terrestrial environment primarily goes on in soil. And so if you want to think how to relate to soil, 
in a responsible way. The key is to make sure that the organic matter, dead organic matter, gets returned to the soil so these bugs can get their lunch and break it down and stick the soil particles together and release the nutrients for the plants. Well, let's take a, a cornfield okay. that was started on pristine soil, this community that you spoke about, which mm -hmm. is more various, richer than any known life above the soil. Right. What has happened to it after a number of years of farming in the current way? Well, for a start, the way we grow corn is as a row crop, which means that most of the year, most of the soil is bare. And even when the corn is growing, we kill everything between the corn, usually. So most of that soil is bare, and that makes the soil subject to erosion by wind and water and rain and so forth. In an average cornfield, we're probably losing 20 or more tons of topsoil per acre per year. And there's probably about a maximum of four or five tons produced. So you've got a net loss of 15 or so tons of topsoil per acre per year just being exported out of the system by erosion. So the system is obviously not sustainable. And the waste that's going back into that system, the corn stalks, is just one type of organic matter. You know, it's like if you had a, a normally had a, a diversified diet and somebody started just feeding you lettuce leaves for the rest of your life. That's, in a sense, what's happened to that soil community. Suddenly they've got this monotonous diet of corn stalks, which is incredibly restricting for a lot of the bugs that live there, and so they gradually die out, and you start off with maybe a thousand different species and run down to a, a measly few hundred, and then even less than a hundred, probably, after years and years of corn. The key, of course, is to do the opposite, is to have a rotation of different crops from one year to the next, grow different things in between the corn as companion crops and intercrops and so forth, and then keep all those diverse amounts of organic wastes returned into the soil so those organisms can have a feast instead of a, a monotonous diet. Now we've got to work with the system and try and be an ally to it, try and be supportive to those natural processes and have some respect that those organisms are the experts and not constantly be trying to be one up on nature and get it, straighten it out. You know, if they're there, they're doing some job. And if we, if every time we lose one of those organisms, we inherit the job. And if we don't know they're doing the job, the job doesn't get done. And we couldn't do it anyway. They're, they're experts. We're amateurs. You know, we, even all these scientists coming up with biotechnology solutions, thinking they're going to do all these jobs for, that nature has been doing for millions of years, just haven't got a really good understanding of it because they're thinking of one organism that they're going to splice in some DNA and and do this specific little biochemical uh, pathway and carry it out. But that's not what's going on in nature. There are thousands and thousands of little biochemical processes going on. And 
And if you really wanted to control those, it would take all the scientists in the world. And even then, you know, we'd, we'd still not know what's going on. But it reminds me of the, the fellows who were uh, selecting the short-stemmed grain varieties in the tropics with the Green Revolution. Now, it looks like a great plan, you know. You've got this great long stalk and this little bunch of seeds on the top. How much more efficient if we have a short stalk and and some seeds and then we haven't got all the energy wasted going into the stalk but we didn't ask what's the stalk there for you know you can harvest the seed but the stalk is what goes back into the soil as dead organic matter to feed the organisms so they can maintain the fertility of the soil so we've selected this plant now that requires that we put on fertilizer to maintain the fertility of the soil because we've bypassed the organic life in the soil, the, the system that's set up there for doing it. Because it looked like in our simple economic process, it didn't enter into the cost-benefit analysis. We've really got to ask ourselves, if something is there, what's it doing? It must be doing something. Rather than trying to get rid of it if we don't understand it. Well, like weeds. We, you know, we spend massive amounts of efforts trying to get rid of weeds. Well, weeds tend to be trace mineral accumulators, and they tend to accumulate the mineral that is most difficult to obtain. And the weed that grows tends to be the specialist that accumulates this elusive mineral, brings it up to the surface, eventually dies on the surface, makes that mineral available to all the other plants as, it, as the, the weed breaks down from all the decomposers breaking it down and then does itself out of a job and then the next weed takes over through a succession so actually if you allow it to happen a soil will go through a succession of weeds that in quotes heal the soil as they bring up all the nutrients to the surface and create this highly fertile topsoil which is what naturally has gone on through time and why we have such fertile soils in some parts of the world but we see this weed as not the crop so we come in and put on a herbicide or or I'll come in with a cultivator and get rid of it but somehow we've got to instead of so much getting rid of the weeds favor the crop that we want to grow so we give that crop the best advantage and select for plants that can outcompete weeds rather than plants that can respond to pesticides and fertilizers and herbicides and everything. If we go back to the cornfield, take southwestern Ontario, where I mm -hmm. believe the soils are very deep, mm -hmm. very rich. What is happening in that field now if it's been farmed conventionally for... Mm -hmm the last 30 or 40 years? Well, the, the community in the soil would have been gradually simplified. Now, if it's got a lot of fertility and it's a deep soil, it's like living on the capital in the bank. And so we, we can go on doing that for quite a long time. It can get out of balance, though, in the process, because when we put on a certain fertilizer, let's say we're putting on nitrogen, potassium and phosphorus, which is what we keep, tend to keep putting on, that creates deficiencies of other things. 
because the, the soil is a bit like um like a railway carriage you know there's a certain number of seats in the carriage well in the soil there are a certain number of locations where minerals can sit and be held now if you keep putting on uh, more and more of one it eventually bumps some of the other ones off so you keep putting on phosphorus or you keep putting on calcium it sort of bumps these others off and and you end up with a lot of the thing you're putting on being held and the other things being more available to be lost by water draining through the soil and carrying the minerals down into the groundwater or being eroded away and so I would think those soils are gradually becoming unbalanced and uh, having their their diversity of wildlife in them at least micro wildlife yeah. uh, depleted How serious is this? Well, I think it's very serious because it's one of those things where we're approaching this threshold where the soil eventually becomes unproductive and we don't know how far we are from the threshold and the nearer we get to it, the more expensive it is to correct the situation. And when we th cross the threshold and the system breaks down, then it becomes almost inhibitively expensive to do anything about it. And so the onus is on us to learn how to manage that soil before we get to that point so that it can be healing itself, rejuvenating itself, maintaining itself just as a byproduct of the way we design and manage our agricultural systems or our forestry systems. Well, what are the signs now in terms of declining productivity, uh, soil loss, and so on, that can already be seen in Canada? Well, in a way, the amount of fertilizer and pesticide and uh, any other inputs, antibiotics and so forth, that we're having to put on in agriculture to achieve production is a measure of our failure to work the system, to manage the system and design our operations so that the system can function. So when when somebody tells me that they achieve this enormous production, my question is, well, what did you have to put on to achieve it? And that's the measure of of how incapable they are, in a sense, in terms of their skills of managing. If we've got to keep bolstering up the system with these inputs, which potentially can be produced in the system by managing it properly. You know, it's like uh, people having to keep taking some drug to carry out a function of the body that the body's capable of doing. Eventually the body gives up trying to do it. Why should I bother? They keep giving me this drug to do this thing. Well, the soil functions a bit the same way. If we keep putting on nitrogen, it stops the free-living nitrogen fixers from fixing nitrogen. So there's, they eventually sort of peter out. We keep putting on phosphorus, it stops the fungal associations of roots, the mycorrhizal fungi, from liberating the phosphorus that's in the soil. Now, our whole technological approach has tended to uh, 
and control approach has tended to put those organisms out of business rather than say, how can I be an ally to those organisms? How can I help them do their job? And the, the potential is enormous for this. And that, to me, would be real science, is, is learning how to do that. Whereas the, the science we do now is pretty boring and tame. How does this new science differ from the current science? Well, I think I see it particularly coming out if we look at how we solve problems. Like, current science tends to be looking for what some people have called magic bullet solutions to solving problems. They tend to be solutions that are quick, high-power, physical and chemical, short-term, expert-dependent, high-technology-dependent, imported solutions. Now, what we have hardly tried is the opposite, which would be the alternative approach, which is to look at complex, diverse, long-term, locally-derived, indirect, uh, multifaceted, bioecological type solutions to problems. And they're often very dependent on knowledge and skills, which need to be locally derived. And the precise carrying out of certain actions in time and space, like when we plant a seed and where we plant it, it makes a whale of difference as to what happens, whether that plant is got by an insect or zapped by some disease is a function of, of the environment and time and space. And because we've had access to chemicals that can control pests and diseases and fertilizers that can add fertility to the soil or make it look like we're adding it, it's, it's made it seem like we didn't have to know about time and space and these relationships because you could always override them with an input. Now, of course, the resources are limited that these inputs are derived from. and The cost is going to go up and the availability is going to go down. And the overuse of them is impacting on the environment in various ways and, and eventually having effects on us. So, you know, there are all sorts of pressures to not be so dependent on these and to find out alternative ways to, to do the same thing, which comes back to learning how to work with the ecological processes that go on in the system naturally and be supportive to them. Can you say more about this, the, the idea of the, of the time being important, the placing being important? Like this, Tell me what a farmer who employs this more subtle science is, okay. is likely to be doing. I guess examples that come to mind would be insects. Like some insects emerge from the soil in the spring when the day reaches a certain length and the temperature is a certain level and suddenly, boom, all these insects emerge and then they look for a plant to lay their eggs on. Now, if that plant is there, uh, they'll go and lay their eggs on it. If, however, you've delayed planting that plant for a week, and they've all emerged and there's nowhere to lay their eggs and they all die and uh, don't lay them and then you 
plant your plant, you've missed that pest. So you haven't then got to go and apply a pesticide to control the pest because you've, just by the timing of the operation, you can avoid it. You may be able to do the same thing by planting earlier. For example, cutworms are the caterpillars of a moth that will go down a row of beans and broccoli and things and cut the stems of all those little seedlings and plants. Now, if the plant has reached a certain thickness of the stem and also in terms of its biochemical composition is less sort of juicy and not so much free amino acids floating around in the tissue of the plant as it's got a bit bigger, it's of no interest to the cutworm. First of all, it can't cut it because it's too tough and it doesn't taste right anyway. So by planting that bit earlier and getting that plant to the stage where it's not susceptible, you can avoid the cutworm. By planting the carrot a bit later, you can avoid the carrot rust fly because it, you don't coincide with the pest. Now all pests have their season <laughs> and so there's opportunities there to avoid those pest problems by managing the crops in those ways. This involves more knowledge and presumably less production as well. Well, it may be paradox. I, I always think that I haven't understood what's going on unless I've come to the thought that maybe there's a paradox involved. First of all, I think one needs to use more knowledge but not necessarily have more knowledge. Some of that knowledge we need to use is the intuitive knowledge that in a sense flows through us from being just tuned in to things and allowing ourselves to acknowledge the feelings we have that say this would probably be a good thing to do even though we may not fully understand why we're thinking that that is a good thing to do and so that's useful knowledge particularly if we note down what we did and we note down what happens because we can learn in the process. I think in terms of production, though, in most cases, once we start to manage things in this way, we find actually the system is more productive, particularly if we look at it over a long period of time because we have less ups and downs. Like in a conventional management system, we tend to have a lot of good years and bad years. The crop wiped, people talk about the crop wiping out this year. Something happened that they didn't expect would happen. And uh, maybe they didn't have a pesticide that they could put on when some unexpected insect arrived. Well, when you you manage things in a much more ecological and diverse way, so what if you lose a few things? There's always plenty more of different types of things that are not affected. So you always have a lot of a lot of produce. I know when some people come to my garden, they'll walk around the garden and they say, "God, uh, you know, how come you tolerate all these holes in the beetroot?" I say, "Well, my function is to nourish the family, and there's more food out there than we can possibly eat." And even if we lost a few beets, who cares? You know, so there's some for some of the insects. I mean, they're taking their bit and I'm taking my bit. But if one is 
is trying to achieve Olympic standard everything, beets and asparagus and carrots and potatoes, then of course you're going to be on a treadmill of having to put on pesticides and fertilizers and all sorts of things. Because we have the wrong objective, the wrong vision, you know, it's, if productivity of every single thing is our goal, then we're, we're forced to keep using all these inputs. But if we're, we're actually trying to nourish people, then it's a whole different story. Stuart Hill has always emphasized that ecological agriculture, or sustainable agriculture, involves a new attitude as well as a new practice. The farmer or gardener who works his or her ends by patient attention or careful design must be willing to forgo the big effects available with chemicals. Hill once pointed out to me the passage in the ancient Chinese classic, the Tao Te Ching, which says, of a good leader who talks little, when his work is done, his aim fulfilled, the people will say, we did this ourselves. A good farmer, Hill believes, should be equally anonymous. He must be willing to let the farm do it itself. The conventional solutions of pesticides and fertilizers I think are not just used because they kill pests or make the plants grow, but because they do it in a powerful way, in an instant way. So you can spray your pesticide and then suddenly the field is full of all these dead insects laying on their backs with their legs shaking and it confers on the person who applied that pesticide the power. It, it gives them that powerful feeling that I can make it happen when I want to, where I want to. And in that sense it's subject to compensating for an internal sense of powerlessness. Whereas the biological control and the natural control that's sort of gently going out there and nibbling on one another in a very non-powerful sort of way and in a non-instant non sort of way doesn't have that power symbolism and I notice the people trying to sell biological controls are now learning that if they want to really sell them they've got to put great big jaws on them in, in the advertisements and this ladybird beetle will go and chomp all your aphids to death, you know. All this bacterium looks like a little Pac-Man, you know, to, will nobble every little caterpillar by gobbling it up almost. And uh, they're having more success, I think, selling them when they tap into this power symbolism, which I think you know brings us to the roots of this, is that a lot of this straight rows of crops and no weeds and killing every insect when we don't even know whether the insect is doing any harm or not is very much tied up with with people's feeling of impotence and powerlessness and I think if we're really going to have a transition to sustainable agriculture or sustainable anything we really have to have it on several levels we've got to look at rational ways to solve problems and that's usually the level that we emphasize but we've also got to look at the whole system level and see that if we manage systems differently we would wouldn't have these problems in the first place so there'll be less interest in coming up with these magic bullet powerful solutions because we would have designed them out of the system then we need to look at the political level 
and the socioeconomic levels, how can we support the designing approach, the pre health promotion approach, the ecosystem health promotion approach, politically and socioeconomically and culturally and spiritually and so forth. And then at the individual level, what sort of individual is going to do this? How, what, how does such a, such a type of individual feel about themselves? How can we bring up children so that they become those sort of individuals? And how do we educate them and provide them with opportunities for experience? That they can become the sort of person who doesn't need to become addicted to power symbolism and uh, magic bullet solutions to problems and can be, in a sense, more wise and wait and learn from and integrate with and interact with the system in a mutually beneficial way, symbiotic sort of way. On Ideas tonight, you've been listening to part seven of The Age of Ecology. The series concludes next Friday evening. Heard on tonight's program were Stuart Hill of McGill University's MacDonald College and author Murray Bookchin. The Age of Ecology is written and presented by David Cayley. Production assistants, Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. Technical operations, Lorne Tulk. Producer, Jill Eisen. Transcripts of this eight-part series are available for $20. Send a check or money order payable to Ideas Transcripts, Ecology, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. And please be prepared to wait eight weeks for delivery. We've also prepared a free reading list to supplement this series, and you can get that by writing to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.
Thank you.